for exploring the Marvel multiverse. I'm Elias Rosner. And I'm Jake Hill. And this week we are discussing our book club book of the month, and that is Supervillain Team-Up, Modox 11. Excelsior. Excelsior. That book is uh, written by Mr. Fred Van Lenti, drawn by uh, Francis Bertella, inked by Terry Pallet, with colors by Guru FX, and letters by Nate uh, Piecos. So I knew nothing about this book. I didn't even know it existed before Jake had introduced it to me. And I want to know how this thing came about. (laughs) Jake, please help me. I regret to say... (laughs) I regret to say that I only can help you a little bit with that. Oh, no. I I don't know, like, who commissioned this and why, but I can tell you um, a little bit about the creators because I am a big fan of Fred Van Lenti. All right. Feed me that Van Lenti knowledge. As I talked about in our episode where we talked about our experience with Marvel, there was a period where I didn't read any comics at all. And um, I started reading them again in college. And I ended up, um, and this is like, uh, God, ready for an embarrassing podcast confessional ass? Let's do it. As an undergraduate, I majored in philosophy. <sighs> yeah. I did, there was just wonderful philosophy. I went to the College of Worcester in Worcester, Ohio, and there was wonderful philosophy department there. And the professors were all really great, and I took some classes, and I fell in love with them, and it. And um, my advisor was this really cool lady, really cool professor, uh, whose name was Liz Schiltz. And I remember going to Liz Schiltz's office, and she told me about how she used to listen to The Cure in the 90s, and that's what got her into philosophy. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. I was 18. And um, then I was looking at her bookshelf, and she had comics on it, and this blew my mind, and I asked her about it. And the comics were Action Philosophers by Fred Van Lenti and Ryan Dunlavey. And even though I wasn't reading comics, um, I ended up reading that. And then, much to my surprise later, as just as I'm getting back into Marvel earnestly, Fred Van Lenti is writing The Incredible Hercules. And I go back and I find out that not only did this guy do, like, like edutainment kind of comics, which I will talk about and stand behind, but um, he just, like, also did awesome superhero stuff every so often. Usually kind of um, humorous and political in tone. And I could talk a little bit more about Fred Van Lenthe specifically, but um, this was not your first experience with him as a writer, right? No, this was not. I first experienced—I think my first Van Lenthe book was Ivar Timewalker over at Valiant. Oh, great one. I love that one. Yeah, I wish that I wish Ivar was still around a little bit more. I even went so far as to track down, I think, the first seven or eight issues of the original Ivar Tom Walker. And, also uh, kind of good. A 99-cent bargain bin, and I'm missing just a couple issues, and so I'm holding off until I get them all so I can read them all at once. I read that series. It's actually um, a lot of the Valiant stuff is like feels dated and like a, we make comics in a different way now kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, but Ivar's a real fun read. That's like a real imaginative, crazy book. Well, so I didn't know this um, specifically, but I found out that Fred Van Lenti's biggest comic book influence, I'm, I'm not surprised to learn this, is actually um, from a favorite of yours, from a favorite series of yours. Oh, I have no guesses. And that is Howard the Duck. When he was a kid, uh, Steve oh Gerber, creator God. Howard the Duck, was his was his uh, hero. And... Um, Fred Van Lenthe's model a lot of his books after, like, Steve Gerber style. And that makes a lot of sense because Steve Gerber was similarly, like, a funny political writer, mm-hmm. right? He wrote, like, political humor in the 70s, and he was really into, like, druggy counterculture stuff. Yeah. And Fred Van Lenthe's got, like, a similar vibe, but, you know, if you're, uh, I don't want to guess his age, uh, like, uh, in your 40s today. 
Yeah, Fred Van Lenthe, he wrote uh, notably this series, Monox 11 and Taskmaster, which are two Marvel villain series I love. He also wrote, there's another Marvel, Incredible Hercules, as I was just saying, with Greg Pak, which is an incredible series if you've never read it, Elias. I have not. The Greg Pak Hulk stuff is a bit of a blind spot at the moment. I just haven't gotten around to reading it. Oh, yeah, that's good stuff. Well, uh, Hercules has the uh, funnest sound balloons of any comic you'll ever read. There's all sorts of hidden messages in the sound effects, and they're very funny. Oh, that's great. Yeah, it's a real fun one. And then he went on to work for Valiant for a while, um, including doing it in the reboot 2012 new version of Valiant that we have today. He mm-hmm. did the original one of Archer and Armstrong, which is a real favorite of mine. I just came out at like a fun time in my life when I was working at a comic shop and loved that run. But he's probably best known for doing a lot of like nonfiction comic work. He's done the Action Philosophers. He teaches philosophy and does their bios through a comic book, and he's got Action Presidents, which is uh, does a similar thing. But my favorite nonfiction thing he did is he wrote something called the comic book history of comics oh that was recent yeah yeah, yeah. or, or they, they re-released it recently they recently re-released the issues because i believe it came out in like a weird magazine format originally and then it came out in trade and then it came out in proper comic issues if i unless i'm much mistaken i think that's how it went yeah and that's usually, you, you will never, like, a great, complete survey of, like, the history of comics, and he hits upon, like, a lot of major things. You know, every anything could go more into depth, but it's a great, like, wide look at it. It's done as a comic book. Some creators are drawn in the style of their own art. It's a lot of fun. As for what Finn Lenti is all about, it's interesting. I was looking for more stuff about his personal life, and I actually had a lot of trouble finding it. Or uh, considering how political a lot of his work is, you would think he would have a more of a political presence in the world. Mm-hmm. But if it, if it exists, it's not heavily on the internet. Probably for the best. Yeah, which I guess shows good judgment. I mean, maybe he's got, like, some really scandalous stuff and it's hidden behind something. But um, my superficial look around didn't find it. But what I did find is he's got a charmingly old-fashioned-looking website. Real GeoCities. Eh, maybe post-GeoCities, but, like, real George R. R. Martin, not a blog energy. <laughs> um, somebody who listens to this podcast got that reference, and they feel really seen right now. <laughs> we see you, J- J- Jim. Oh, interesting guess. But anyway, what I did find on Fred Valenti's charmingly old-fashioned looking website was he's got a page called How to Format a Comic Script. And he opens it by saying, I have been very flattered over the years to be complimented on the way I format my comic scripts. He describes uh, how he tracked down Steve Gerber's Howard the Duck scripts as a kid and they inspired him to write comics. And how he's got a particular style, and just like every a lot of artists that he works with, go out of their way to tell him that uh, he is a nice scripter. So he has a uh, he created a Microsoft Word format, and you can download it off his website. That's pretty rad. And I just bring this up because Fred Van Lenty really, truly strikes me as a guy who truly loves comics, just like one of those comic creators who loves comics as an art form, and you could offer him a zillion dollars to write something else, but comics are what he loves. He's going to stick with it, and he takes it real seriously, and he seems uh, like a real generous creator. A lot of people who have worked with him have enjoyed their, the experience and want to do it again. So I just, like, I love Fred Van Lenty. He was a fun guy to discover when I wasn't as into comics doing his nonfiction stuff. And he's always done interesting stuff since then that has always made me laugh and learn. And that's my little spiel on Fred Van Lenty, Elias. I think that's a very nice way of putting it. Now, hold on. I'm, I'm retracting that statement because it's a stupid statement. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought it was nice, but that's because you were complimenting me. Anyway, he does this comic, particularly, Modox 11. He does it with Francis Portella. Do you know much about Francis Portella? No. He's... The only creator on this I recognize is, uh, are Nate Piekos and Guru FX, and that's because they are Marvel mainstays for coloring and lettering. 
Francis Bertella is one of those guys who's always been around, but I, uh, you know, I don't seek out his work, but I often encounter it, and I'm usually delighted. He was a, a real a Marvel Knights guy. He did uh, Black Panther, and he also uh, he did something. I think he did some Spider Man and some Heroes for Hire stuff in those early two thousands. And I a lot of that art. I think is some of the most poorly aging art. Like, even worse than that bad 90s stuff is that early 2000s stuff. Yeah, that's when the the computer computer started to, to enter in, but people didn't quite know how to use it, and also the programs weren't quite there. So we have that approximating experimental stuff, some of which is really cool and some of which really fell flat yeah and you'll see that with some of the coloring work does that real weird computer early computer stuff and i think that uh, didn't do his art any favors but honestly of a lot of the artists from that era i feel like he acquits himself the best not the best that's a bold statement but i his art has aged better than a lot of his contemporaries i think a lot of it is also that era of art and i'm gonna you know someone might be able to find some receipts and prove a time i was wrong but from what I remember, having read some of his work recently, it's not very uh, cheesecakey. Is a word mm-hmm. that I hear get used. The women aren't uh, scantily clad with you know boobs that can defy gravity, which was a real trend of those early two thousands art. And he generally has like more of a kinetic old school meets Quentin Tarantino feel. Like if John Byrne was drawing Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I feel I I feel that. Yeah, is that a my is that did, too much? I don't know where to put uh, Francis Portella in like the Pantheon. I like him a lot. He recently, I, I guess I should have mentioned, recently he moved to Valiant and did Archer and Armstrong and Ivar Timewalker and Faith. He co-created Faith, in fact, and that's a very well, the art in that uh, the series in particular was uh, celebrated. I believe he was Eisner nominated for that, in fact. It's possible. I mean, it it has been, a, I mean, it was less than a decade. Cause, so from Modrox 11, which came out in 2008, to Faith, I think Faith was 2014. That sounds right. Let me double check that. Da, 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 da. Faith has been off the stands for way too long. What ah, Valiant's is, kind of a mess right what now. What is Valiant doing? Come on, Valiant. No, 2016. Yeah, so that's not a not um, a short. Oh no, 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 no. I'm sorry. That's the that's the ongoing. That's not the. Not the original mini series. Not the original mini. The original mini was. I also don't know if he did because Faith was introduced in another book. In Harbinger. And then, yeah, and Harbinger and then spun out. But yes, it was the, the original, also 2016, just earlier in the year. <laughs> no, that makes sense. But the the art looks completely different. I don't think and, completely different, but much well, improved. He's, he's refined yeah. his style, and his the colorist really agrees with him. The colorist does a lot of heavy lifting. Him yeah, and I, I really like Guru FX. I like the way they, they currently work. But this definitely has that early uh, it's not even early 2000s just that 2000s sheen that makes everything kind of look like they're clay plastic dolls yeah and it's a little bit overdrawn like costumes have too many lines and there's too much just busy work they're not confident to i guess because they know the coloring is so ugly they don't want to leave these big flat expanses to be colored in but they also don't want to fill it in more like they would used to with cross hatching and inking less reliant on that to fill in the shading because the colorist can now take over that job rough time for comic art and we're talking about a book from 2007 modox super uh, super villain team up modox 11 so elias you didn't even know this book existed right no no idea 
Hell, I didn't even know 90% of these villains existed. <laughs> I, even more, I will talk about some of them, my favorites. Yeah, we'll talk them. about some of them. But uh, did you like the did you like the series? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, this is, so this is what I figured you're about, right? You want the like weird mini series that aren't part of something larger, but like really stand strong. If they've got a, a clear mission, they, they come in, they do their job, they leave, and they have fun doing it, or they just do something super well. I think that's that's definitely something that, that I'm all about. And Modox 11 is something I, was, I am all about. And before we keep going, I have to make a confession that I did not realize the connection between the title, Modox 11, and the classic crime heist movie, Ocean's Eleven. Oh no! I'm an idiot. Th- that's even better. Then you just got really surprised. Yeah, I was totally surprised. I got it. I was like, "Oh, this is what they're doing." I'm here for that. So this was coming out of Civil War, and I'm, I, if I could speculate a little bit, I think one thing Marvel did with Civil War is all the comics had to tie over with it. Infamously, every comic series that Marvel had that was coming out during Civil War became a Civil War book, and often to the detriment. It seems like the uh, creators were not warned with ample time, and a lot of them didn't realize they were expected to participate. Real shit show. But another thing that came out of Civil War was Marvel, did for the first time, Marvel started doing miniseries tie-ins with a major event as like a launching point for potential new series and characters. A real dud of a series was uh, The Heroes for Hire that premiered during Civil War. Do you remember that series, Elias? Nope. Yeah, neither does anyone else. With uh, Black Tarantula was on that team, or maybe just regular Tarantula. They're both. That that was not a very successful book. But because of that climate of willing to really try wacky new things, I think this probably was a pitch by Fred Van Lenti, and Marvel was like, you know what, let's try it and see what comes out of it. I think that's the only thing that makes sense to me. I I believe it. I think Van Lenti also knew he probably couldn't keep this up past one arc. Like, maybe he could have, but... Well, this was always conceived as a miniseries. On the original covers of the issues, it says miniseries, one of five. And it didn't spin out into anything, did it? I later actually followed up with a really absurd one-shot about Modoc going home during Dark Rain to his mom, Doc. (laughs) Which I have signed by him. (laughs) I ran into him at a con, and I said, I own all these books, um, but I would love your signature. And he goes, you own this book? And he busted out uh, Modoc dark rain and i said you got me fred and he signed it for me that's i love those kinds of stories yeah i'm always running into fred van lenti and fun ways at cons all right so we should probably get onto the series unless you've got more to say about fred van lenti i'm certain i will but yeah this is um as elias realized late in the game the title is a parody of oceans 11 it's a crime heist and modok is trying to steal crazy technology power source thingy I think it's called the the hyper Q continue babblebum. Yeah, you got the vibe of it. The hypercube continuum babblebum. The, the MacGuffin, the hyper MacGuffin. Yeah, it's a hyper MacGuffin. He puts together a team of very specific loser villains who together are going to be the ultimate heist team. Something you might not know about me, Elias. Mm-hmm. I love heists. I love them. Oh, I didn't. I didn't know this. Ocean's Eleven is actually not my favorite heist. As heist movies go, I always feel like Ocean's Eleven, the heist looks so expensive. If you're spending that much money on a heist, you might as well just keep the money. Oh, that's fair. But give me a a Fast and Furious 5, or even, if you want a good Steven Soderbergh, a Logan Lucky, now there's a heist. Ooh. See, I'm a big fan of the original 
Ocean's Eleven. Uh, the original is cool. Yeah, I just don't think that uh, yeah, Brad Pitt. Whatever, you're not that cool, Brad Pitt. No. George Clooney. Whatever. I see you, George Clooney. Go back to space with Sandra Bullock, where you belong. <laughs> we're, we're, are we really just gonna rag on, on George Clooney now? Can we? No, like can we George just spend Clooney. the rest of this time ragging on him? I'm sorry, George. I know you don't listen to this, but he was like not in the my bottom list tier, my bottom tier list of Batman's. He's. That's fair. I mean, that it's a pretty short list. I can find Batman's. I got Batman's on Batman's. But we're not talking about Batman. We're talking about Modok and other and, and villains that Batman wouldn't even notice. Yo, who we got? <laughs> what villains are we talking about here? First, who the hell is Modok? Let's for those who do not know what who Modok is, let's let's kind of set that stage. I mean, the book does actually a very good job of giving us all the relevant details. So if you have no idea who this giant head with tiny arms and tiny feet floating little in the Little baby feet. Little baby little hands. baby feet. If you don't know who he is, then you could you could pick it up pretty fast. In fact, this is kind of, in my opinion, the definitive telling of Modoc's origin. I don't think it's ever been done better. Yeah, it's it's short, it's simple. And there's a like a darkly ironic twist to it in this, which I like. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> a little a little sad. Poor poor what's his face? Uh talking you feel bad schlub. for George? Yeah, George. George Tarleton? Nah, that guy was a creep. Poor, poor schlub. I thought that guy was a creep from the beginning. You're making him a giant head with little baby hands did not make him less creepy. No, no, it did not. Made him more creepy, in, in fact. In fact, that, see, I just thought he was kind of sad at the beginning, and then when he became giant baby head, that's when he became super creep. So the thing about Modoc is that Modoc is one of those villains that like looks preposterous in only a comic book Saturday morning cartoon kind of possible way. Yeah. He's a giant head. Uh, which we've said a number of times, but just like if you don't know what Modoc looks like, we're really not overselling what a giant head he is. He's so big, and his hands are so small, and his feet are so small, and he so floats tiny. on a little rocket chair because um, he can't move because his little feet can't support his giant head. He's never appeared live action before because um, for good reason. Well, just like whoever can crack what you would make Modoc look like is going to be a genius. Generally, he's fought the Avengers, Captain America, like those guys. And he kind of vacillates between, um, they'll tell, most of the time Modox, he's not a joke, but he's funny. When he's around, uh, the story gets funnier, although he is scary. Then the next writer who reads Modoc always is like, I'm going to be the one to make Modoc scary again. And then every so often you get one where they make Modoc like a giant spider or something. But I like him better funny. That, uh, I, don't, I don't like that. You don't like spiders a lot. No, no, I don't like Spider Modok. Oh yeah, Spider Modok was creepy, and like they succeeded. He was a creepy. It was a creepy look, but like uh, the stories were weren't as interesting as this. No, this was very interesting. Also, the first issue ends with a who's who for Modok, which is also if you want more information on him, just read that. Yeah, I don't know if that's in my trade collection. Oh, they they dropped it. Did they also drop the uh, recap pages? Uh, probably. I remember them being very uh, funny for when it was coming out. Boo. The, these recap pages are the best. Yeah, Van Lenti loves doing like fourth wall breaky stuff with uh, with that sort of thing. He would do so well under uh, Don of X. Bring him in. Yeah. I, I think the best part of them is it's really clear. It's just, here's the, pre- I mean, the second issue, it's this guy, Modoc, and then it gives the, the cool heist name at the top. Is giving these guys and just has the list and as well as teasing more characters to come well you know there's gonna be 11 yeah you know there's gonna be 11 but i i figured oh the the 11 was just just a fun reference but no there there will be 11 and then this five million dollars a piece to rob this and each issue 
messes with the formula a little bit, but it's clear, it's concise, and you don't have to deal with this giant wall of text. Uh, like Bendis's Legion stuff right now. I love you, Bendis, and I appreciate you giving DC a bit of a middle finger by including a recap page in your comics, because DC notoriously does not do recap pages in order to differentiate themselves from Marvel, and he sneaks it in by having the first page of most of his comics be a recap page, and he use, and he does them fairly interestingly, but Jesus, they're walls of text. Today's episode of Make Mine Multiversity is brought to you by Comixology. Immerse yourself in over 20,000 digital comic books, graphic novels, and manga titles from over 125 publishers of Comixology. Our first-in-class exclusive guided view technology provides an unparalleled immersive and cinematic reading experience for readers. Hey, we're Panels in Motion, a monthly podcast where we read a comic, watch its movie adaptations, and figure out what went right or what went wrong. We focus on a wide variety of non-superhero comics. One month will be an American independent comic like The Mask or Kingsman. The next will be a European comic like Persepolis or Tintin. And the next will be a Japanese manga like Lone Wolf and Cub or Silent Voice. I'm a writer. I'm a director. And I'm a cinematographer. So we all have different perspectives on why an adaptation might or might not work. We're also a show where a discussion of Middle East education or the sexual revolution can take place alongside a discussion of the pros and cons of Jim Carrey's face. There is truly something for everyone. So check us out. Go subscribe to Panels in Motion on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Stitcher. And follow us at Panels in Motion on Twitter and Instagram. See you soon. I want to ask you, Elias, where uh, where do you know Modoc from originally? Do you, or like not originally, but just like um, what's the definitive? Uh, why does Modoc uh, stick in your brain? I'm trying to think. I want to say this '90s Spider-Man cartoon. I think Modoc. I think Modoc was in that. I'm pretty sure you're right. That or Avengers: Earth's Mightiest Heroes. I'm certain he was in Earth's Mightiest Heroes. I, he was very memorable. In that. Those were the places I saw him. I remember him because he was a playable fighter in Marvel vs. Capcom three. And just like, what a weird pick. And if you've never played, have you ever played Marvel vs. Capcom? Yeah. I, I, I have never played it because I'm a crap fighting game player. The only one I will play is Super Smash Brothers. But I have watched my friend play. I've watched him play so much of that in high school. In the third Marvel vs. Capcom, the one that has Modoc in it, just all the Marvel vs. Capcoms, they shout the names of their moves like very notoriously. Modoc's voice in that game was so creepy, and I, I can, I, it, some of those lines burned themselves into my brain. I can remember him going, Psionic Blaster! In like a raspy <laughs> voice. That's how I just, like, I never forget. It's awesome that they included him in that game. Really keeps Modoc. We haven't even said what Modoc is. Modoc, his name is an acronym. That's, we, we buried the lead here. Why do they call him Modoc? Well, they call him Modoc because his name means mental organism designed only for killing. Yes, there is a four in there that is not part of the acronym. Real um, Calvin and Hobbes gross is an acronym for get rid of slimy girls. Not good acronym work, guys. But when Modoc was Modoc was not intended to be a mental organism designed only for killing. Yeah, he was intended to be a mental organism designed only for computing. Yeah. By a crazy scientist cult. Yeah, so uh, Modoc is kind of like the often the definitive face of advanced idea mechanics or AIM, who are the Marvel villains who often dress like psychotic beekeepers. No, no, nuclear nuclear disposal. Well, I guess that makes sense. They were like beekeepers to me. Not enough mesh. <laughs> yeah, I should know better. My girlfriend's family actually is, uh, keeps bees.
Oh. Yeah, we used to in the before times we would get fresh honey back in the day. Uh, that was great. I mean, Modoc does look a little bit like a bee bee smoker. You're right. Wow, I think uh, you just opened my my third eye, which is where <laughs> Modoc's psionic blaster come, came out of. Yeah, so this comic opens with uh, Modoc's origin as he's getting built by AIM to be a mental organism designed only for computing, and it turns out that Modoc is this loser named uh, Fred Tarleton. Fred is dating a woman who in this comic is only uh, identified as Monica. Did you recognize who this character was, Elias? No, but also they weren't dating. They slept together once because she felt bad for him and was like, I need a lay. You're right. And uh, she she even talks about how she, she does this um, compulsively because she also did it with a loser in college named Bruce Banner. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Which I really like Bruce Banner being brought down to George Tarleton's level because both those guys are creeps. Anyway, that woman Monica is Monica Rappuccini. See, I don't, I don't, uh, the name is familiar. She is also known as the Scientist Supreme of AIM, and she was the villain in uh, Jeremy Whitley's Unstoppable Wasp. She was a prominent villain in that. And she also um, is involved with, uh, she's a rival of Sunspots when Sunspot turns AIM into Avenger idea mechanics. I forgot about that. This this comic is only her second appearance. Her first appearance was in an earlier issue also by Fred Van Lente. So he created her, and now she's been like a pretty uh, – she's, she's had legs. That villain has uh, stuck around. I happen to know that she is going to be involved in the um, upcoming Avengers PlayStation game. Or I guess it's for everything, Avengers uh, video game. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, so like Monica Rappuccini has a small role in this, and she ends up being going on to be a pretty major villain. But Monica is not one of the 11, so who are we talking about here? So we are talking about, I have to pull that back up because I totally forgot all of their names. So let's start with the ones that I remember. We have Spot. Spot. You know Spot, right? He's like I know Spot. Spot is great because his power is so powerful but so weird and creepy. Yeah. So the Spot's power is he can make a, a... Circle appear. He, he's basically a Looney Tunes villain. He can throw a spot down, jump in it, show up somewhere else where there's a spot that he's thrown or creates. Yeah, so he can make portals like the video game Portal, which is like seems like it'd be super powerful, but he mostly does it to like fail robbing bodegas. I love Mario Spider-Man villains that are like, what if we gave a real idiot really cool powers and then they don't use them that well? I just think that's fun. Yeah. However, the big twist with Spot is that his, you know, his powers, he walks through it and he shows up in the negative zone. Not the negative zone, the dark dimensions, which is basically all of your nightmares times 12. And he has to pass through there every time, which is kind of messed up. Totally messed up. Yeah, all the Dark Force characters got problems. So we've got Spot. We've got Rocket Racer. I know nothing about this guy. You know the Rocket Racer? He's from Spider-Man. He was in the 90s. He's got mom, mommy issues. His mom is also in a coma. Oh, yeah. That was like some Vertigo shit, right? Where, like, I feel like Vertigo villains are always, like, doing creepy stuff with ill relatives. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Rocket Racer's power is that he rides a skateboard that's a rocket. Yeah. Um, and he seems like, of all these villains, he's kind of the one who you're like, oh, man, if this guy had, like, a really dedicated social worker, he wouldn't be racing rockets. Yeah, yeah. Like, like you feel you feel bad for him. He doesn't seem like he's well. No. And he definitely, he definitely shouldn't be a villain, necessarily. But... Well, one of the things I like so much about this is it contrasts a bunch of different uh, styles of villainy. Yeah, yeah. And that, that is really nice. But let's... We should get... 
get through the rotating door of these these villains. Yeah. And we've got Puma, whose real name is I don't see it. Uh, Thomas Fireheart. Thank you. Thomas Fireheart is um God, he's a weird, interesting character because he is um a Native American with a magic talisman who is from a reservation. This comic interestingly shows a little bit of what his life is like and how he's regarded by his community. I just like thought that that was a, a surprising level of nuance for like a character who doesn't seem like he was conceived under the most sensitive or smartest of circumstances. I thought this book like did him did him right, and he seemed like a nuanced, interesting character. I'd want to read more about. Yeah, and it, his plight kind of kind of sucks for him, but at the same time, you're like, all right, I, I get why why he's a villain, and also his tribe hates him. <laughs> Yeah, Not hates him. his his tribe is disappointed in him, and they're like, "You bring shame to us, you bring shame to yourself. Get your shit together." But I like he's kind of presented as the protagonist in this, where they're right and he's fucking around, but he's fighting for his right to self determine. And I I feel like um, his sin is just that he uh, takes things too far and he's a little prideful. But um, that's good villain stuff. And he also you know robs and kills people. But yeah, eh, that's all of them. That's all of them. Yeah, they're villains. It's a story yeah. about villains. And then we've got um, Mentolo, who uh, he's his introduction is him cheating at a casino run by the Purple Man and just being like, "Bobilla, Bobilla, come on, we can split the money." I figured Mentolo would be your either your favorite or your least favorite in the gang, but there's no middle ground for you. No, he he was fun. A little annoying at times. <laughs> he was a little annoying. Uh, he's a classic X-Men villain. He's got telepathy, but he's, again, not as smart as Professor X or anything, so he, like, uses his telepathy to, like, be a jerk and, yeah. like, con people. I really like the way Portella portrays the way he reads minds, the way he's doing the, the surface his surface scans of the different characters, how the next villain, the living laser, is just a bunch of lasers, and how Chameleon has a big mental lock on the brain, which struck me as odd because i didn't think chameleon was that you know psychically reinforced but there is a reason for that and we'll get into that in a second <laughs> it's very twisty yeah so either that was intentional or i was just making assumptions about chameleon really quick yep mentalo mm-hmm. living on krakoa he's very happy there he's back yeah he showed up in a panel of uh Hawksbox. but when did he but he's all right we'll, we'll get to that in a second i want to get through all the names first a Marvel character dying and returning, who would have imagined? Well, yeah, but how long has he been dead? Since this? No, he was resurrected by the Hood during soon after this in Secret Evasion. He recruited to Hammer by Northern Osborn. He uh, fought the Avengers Academy kids. No, he's been around. Okay. Okay. That's fair. All right, so we have the Living Laser. Living Razor's a guy. He got turned into a laser, which would be pretty straightforward. Uh, this book milks it for pathos. He's like a monster who wants to be returned to a man. Classic Marvel villain setup, right? Yeah. He also really likes being hit a little, little too much. Well, he wants to feel stuff again, right? Because uh, being yeah. a laser makes him numb. It turns out it's not fun to be a living laser. No, but the way Van Lenti and Portella draw it just reminded me of those panels of the, the living steam and not living steam, uh, the lady from Ludocrats. I have yet not yet read Ludocrats, in fact. Oh. Even though you know I love Kieran Gillen. I know. You got you got to check it out. It's like this, but amped up to 172. <laughs> Yeah, it's, a, it's so so powerful. So then we've got Deadly Nightshade. Oh, my favorite in the gang. Love me some Deadly Nightshade. I don't know anything about her. She says, she says right away, you know what her most successful caper was before Mordox 11? What? She turned Captain America into Cap Wolf. Oh, yeah. 
Just like there was a famous run of Captain America in the 90s where, oh my God, who wrote Cap Wolf? Do you recall? No, I don't. Cap Wolf was written by, um, oh my God, I don't want to slow internet. down the conversation, to but the by uh, written by Mark Grunewald. And I, what's fun about this is that um, Mark Grunewald had written a lot of Captain America, like many issues. And you could tell he was just like, oh my God, what can I even do with Captain America? I know, I'll invent a new villain who'll turn him into a werewolf. That's never been done before. But but they've always had werewolf by night. Yeah, but Captain America had never been a werewolf. Fair. And Deadly Nightshave injects her with werewolf juice and werewolfifies him, and he's got to fight Cable. It's so cool. And I love how that's an important plot point too well that's kind of her greatest hit and she's never like really she never really got over it and she, she's just like well i guess that werewolf caper was my best ever i should do the werewolf thing more let's just keep repeating amazingly deadly nightshade has been a kind of a really cool character recently where has she been seen she is a minor character in the second season of netflix's luke cage and a very cool one oh she ended up being one of the main characters in David Walker's underrated Avengers. Oh my God, was this? It was the worst title I've ever heard for a series. Um, it wasn't Occupy Avengers, was it? Yes, Occupy Avengers. Thank you. Years after the Occupy Wall Street movement. Yeah, that was a pretty garbage title. But uh, Deadly Nightshade is one of the main characters of that, and by the end of the comic, she becomes the new Nighthawk. Oh. And it's currently in Marvel continuity, uh, Deadly Nightshade, aka Tilda Johnson, is Nighthawk. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so she's, like, around. This was kind of the beginning of a comeback for her. All right, so we got two more. Well, yeah. technically. We got Chameleon. Classic. Spider-Man's first supervillain. Yeah. That's his claim to He fame. can make himself look like anyone else. I don't know if he... He can change his voice, too, right? Of course. Naturally. He's great he's at the it. the master of disguise. He's uh, Craven the Hunter's secret brother. That's the thing about Chameleon. Uh, uh, but we're not getting into that now, but... When I was a kid at the library, they had this, like, Spider-Man on the computer game that was, like, a stamping and drawing make-your-own-comic thing. And yeah. um, you could make them move a little bit and animate them in a primitive way. And the different villains were always my favorite. I loved watching Scorpion move, and uh, I, I remember there being, like, a Venom. And then there was Chameleon, and every time he moved, you would turn into one of the other villain models in the game. And I thought that was stupid. <laughs> If you played that spider, if you had a Spider-Man art game and want to remind me what that's called, you'll make me very happy and nostalgic. Please tweet at me, and I will. Uh, you'll be my new Spider-Man buddy. Please do it. Yeah. All right. So finally, we've got Armadillo. He's cool. What's there to say about Armadillo? He's got. He, he, he's big. He's Armadillo. He likes wrestling. I like uh, wrestling. He reminds me of the Porcadillo from. Superman pal Jimmy Olsen from Matt Fraction. <laughs> I'm referencing DC so much today. Yeah, you're really in a zone. Uh, I'm really in the zone. This is the Marvel podcast. <laughs> so a, a little known thing in the Marvel Universe is there's something called the Unlimited Class Wrestling Federation, and it's an underground wrestling club for super-powered beings. The character most represents... you know about this, Elias? No, I didn't. The character who most uh, is most associated with it is uh, D-Man, is the reigning champ. Um, who has been alternately... He's got half of Wolverine's costume and half of Daredevil's costume, and he's usually homeless. Oh, my God. He's a weird character. Ben Grimm the Thing loves wrestling, and he often participates in unlimited class wrestling. That was actually one of the things he did for his bachelor party in a recent issue. Oh, yeah. That's pretty cool. So Armadillo's part of that league. Yeah. I think he's a mid-carter. Poor Armadillo. He's seven foot six. Poor Armadillo. Yeah, he doesn't really... Uh, it gets treated very nicely in this. Yeah. 
And so the final two rounding out our Ocean's Eleven, they are not revealed until issue three and four, respectively. But we have our good friend Monica Rappaccini (laughs) and the Mandarin, who's actually the son of the original Mandarin. Yeah, nastier than than his old man. Also one less hand. Yeah. Although, which uh, is a problem when your power comes from magic rings. Yep. I mean, you could always put two rings on one finger. The magic pinky rings to double them up. That seems like the kind of thing this kid would do. The Mandarin is always a villain that I understand why people don't want to draw him that way or call him that. But I like I like his ten rings. I like that he's a criminal, international criminal mastermind. I'm happy that um, it seems like they're reimagining him in the upcoming Shang-Chi movie. And I think that's going to be cool. Yeah, that way we wizard. can also get away with get away from the uh, Ben Kingsley Mandarin, or, which worked. Yeah, but, compliment it. But I think they they definitely didn't think that decision through, nor did the script help in any way. No, um, not regarding especially because they made the Ten Rings a terrorist group based out of the Middle East in the first Iron Man movie. Yeah, man, two thousand eight. It was a different time, but not as different as we would hope. Yeah. I feel like going through the plot of this is almost nonsense because it's so twisty, right? I mean, you could just, the basic premise is Modoc wants to seal something. The people, all of the characters don't know why, but all the characters also have their own motivations for what they want to do, who they want to betray, and what they want to steal. So it's always everyone's kind of in tension with each other until we reach the end and everything kind of, all the dust settles and we're like, all right, where do we stand? Yeah, well, it's just chaos is what it is because um, Van Lenti really l- gets in the head of all these different characters and some of them have complicated motivations like because they're betraying each other because they're, or they have secret, they're working for somebody secret and some of them have simple motivations. They just want money or they're opportunistic or some people are honestly trying to follow the plan because they're professionals. And some of them are dead. Well, and, yeah, and some of them are uh, dead by the end of it, and some of them are dead before the beginning of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's that kind of story. Yeah. It, was the spot... So the the two characters that kind of go go by the end missing is uh, Mentolo and the spot. Yeah, we don't see Mentolo die, but it's heavily implied. Wow, he gets pretty roasted. Oh, you know what? I'm completely mistaken. We do see him explicitly die brutally. I don't know yeah. what I was saying. Uh, but the spot gets trapped in the... Not in the dark dimension. He gets trapped within his own spots by the Mandarin. He comes back by uh, by uh, Mark Wade Daredevil. Okay, so he, do- he does return during the Daredevil, that Daredevil run. I, I can't definitively tell you if he returns between those things. I know I know he's definitely in the Charles Soule run for a couple issues, and he's creepy as hell. Yeah, Spot is uh, creepy and funny and creepy. Yeah. Big big old creeper. Yeah, and so it also turns out that Monica Rappaccini was sort of on the team because uh, she was using the uh, Ames awesome android to infiltrate as a fake chameleon. But then the Mandarin had hired the spot to steal the hypercube, hyper, the MacGuffin, and I, yeah, it's not worth it to try and recap the whole thing. But it's a lot of fun to try because it's so ridiculous. But in the end, once it's all all done, all said and done, why was Modok doing this? <laughs> why was Modok doing this? Because he wanted to get back at his ex. He's just like an incel creep. His, what I love about Modoc, and I actually, like, 
this I feel strongly about this actually. I've talked on this podcast before about how I think that it makes so much more sense to have Thanos be a guy who got turned down by a girl and uh, decided to kill the whole universe because that is literally a problem plaguing America. Environmentalists taking things too far is not a problem really facing America. Yeah. Um. So I just feel like I like villainy drawing from real evils of the world. And Modoc just being a creep who hates his girlfriend makes him so evil. And he's pitiful, and you laugh at him. He's kind of fun to read about, but at the end of the day, uh, you wanted to get taken down by a hero because he's a disgusting creep. Yeah, but it's also, I love the way Van Lenti and, and the, the whole crew tease out the ending. <laughs> like at, You're realizing it along with Monica as, as he just, as they, as they show the equation on the board, like the different steps, you know, you've got make product, question mark, question mark, question mark, profit. Got one of those that we saw at the very beginning. And now we're seeing the actual train of thought as it's, as we're going. (laughs) It's just such a great reveal. And it also ends on a MasterCard joke. Um, Like, like, uh... killing my greatest enemy, exquisite. Tricking my greatest enemy into paying me $1 billion to kill her, Priceless. That's the last page for you? Well, that's the second to last page. Oh, yeah. The last, the last page is today I destroyed my girlfriend, tomorrow the world. But, like, come on. That's that's a pretty standard. That's a pretty standard. You just got to end it. But the final joke of the of the book is a MasterCard joke. Yeah, that's real Fred Van Lenty stuff. He's a corn. He's a cornball. Did you have a, a, a favorite villain you were rooting for throughout this? I think I was rooting for Armadillo. Yeah, he Armadillo didn't so do much. Sad. Yeah, he just wanted to make some money. He did nothing wrong. I I could I could have argued for for Living Laser, but I don't know. Living Laser kind of gives me the creeps. I mean, I feel bad yeah. for him, but uh, he's a uh, he, he's no no so divorced from his humanity. Uh, I love Deadly Nightshade. She's just so she's she's the second second for me. She's got the real. Um, like, but with this technology, you can cure cancer. But I want to turn people into dinosaurs. That's like what her vibe is like. Uh, if you haven't seen that famous Spider-Man panel, I have. That's a great one. That's just like right. She's just like uh, she could do all this amazing stuff, but she doesn't because she's freak. And I love her. Rocket Racer totally is creepy, but I love him. I love that he's just like a cool skateboarder who wants to drive bigger and bigger crazy vehicles. His his death death wheel. The big wheel. You don't remember that from the, the Spider-Man wheel. cartoon? No, I don't. Oh, you can't forget the big wheel. There was a great episode of the 90s cartoon about it. It's been so long. I don't remember the big wheel. He's worth pursuing. I think this miniseries is kind of trifling, but what I like about it is um, so many villains appear in it, and next time they're going to appear... You know, if you ever catch Puma in a book now, you don't know how he's going to be written. Maybe they're going to really radically take him more seriously, or maybe they'll bring him in as a joke character or whatever. But now you got this, like, affinity for Puma, right? Kind of, yeah. If you catch him again, you'll be like, that's where Puma ended up. Or how I was so excited that Mentallo is on Krakoa because he's technically a mutant. Why, why the technicality? No technicality, just like uh, he doesn't... Uh... His, his powers never feel mutantish because he's always just like, ah, it's psychic. No, I'm, I not, I uh, shouldn't deny him his mutant identity or anything. Just um, he's not really like he was in Silver Age X-Men, I think. But then he's just kind of like a loser villain who shows up who happens to be a mutant. He's not oh, like I involved gotcha. in the uh, struggle between uh, the ideologies of X-Men. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, this comic actually came on the heels of World War Hulk, which is after Civil War. Because we had one panel earlier. Oh, you're with... right. There was a panel flashing back to World War Hulk. Yeah. 
basic premise of World War Hulk. Hulk was thrown on a rocket off uh, to a planet because before Civil War, so that he wouldn't be on Earth because the Illuminati thought that would be best. Uh, he gets mad. The rocket blows up the planet. He comes back and is like, "Avengers, I blame you." And which, like, yeah, not fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, there's some retcons there eventually, but he just sticks around, beats people up, controls all of New York for a little bit, and then everyone forgets about it. <laughs> yeah, as you have to do with those big Hulk stories, or else no one would be friends with him. Well, I. I'm glad you like this as much as you did, Elias. I recommend Supervillain Team Up Modux 11. I, Fred Van Lenti is my jam, and it seems to be your jam. I think he's fun. And most importantly, I love these Van Lenti books because they kind of fill in a little bit of the texture of these characters. And these characters get used in Marvel again and again. Just He's the reason why I love Taskmaster so much, for example, because he maybe one day we'll read his Taskmaster miniseries. It's wild and funny, and it's just like this. And by the end of it, you'll realize that Taskmaster is one of the most complicated, fascinating figures in the Marvel Universe. And then he just shows up and kind of laughs with his skull mask in other books. Well, you see him doing that, but you don't realize that that's actually a very deep, nuanced experience with a lot going on (laughs) under the mask. I like books that are additive, that um, create more meaning going forward no matter what. Like, even if you're the only one who ever reads this book, it's always going to be true. And MODOK will always be this petty bitch who... uh, hates his ex-girlfriend <laughs> just like uh his most memorable appearance recently was in west coast avengers when he became brodock oh i love brodock right but isn't that brodock's just the sequel to this right he uh he's straight lashing out at women around him because uh he blames them for his shortcomings and then he uh and then the, the sequel to this he tries to make himself hot and it doesn't matter he's still got a wretched personality it turns out who would have thought? Yeah, I just—it's uh, a great follow. Like, uh, I feel like that West Coast Avengers reads even better after Bedox Eleven. I think it—I think it does. Maybe we'll have to go back and read read all that. Introduce more people to the wonders of Jeff. <laughs> we definitely—that's uh, very much on my agenda. I think Jeff is wondrous. Um, but to close this out, Elias, um, I love Modox 11 also for the way it puts the spotlight on like the worst loserist, which is not a word, biggest losery Marvel villains. Do you have a lovable loser Z-list Marvel villain who you rep, who you just think is the best? I do. I'm, I, I, I racked my brain. I tried to think of one that might be, I don't know, I, I don't want to say more well-known, but someone, someone that, that's... I guess more more in the main universe because this villain is not part of six one six. Okay. But my favorite has to be the Bodega Bandit from Spider Gwen. That's a great pick. I love the Bodega Bandit. The Bodega Bandit is the best, and I hope whoever picks up Ghost Spider Spider Gwen again because that series better come back at some point. I'm disappointed that that it has ended. I hope the Bodega Bandit makes a return as well. That's a fantastic pick. I, I love the Bodega Bandit. Mine is almost opposite in terms of like power level and stuff, but I still think he's a loser, and he's definitely less well known. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, Blastar. Do you know Blastar? I think so. Blastar is traditionally yes. a Fantastic Four villain. He looks like a big, uh, he's like a big hairy space wolf man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he can like shoot bombs out of his fists. Um, I was first introduced to Blastar in a favorite comic of mine, the Abnett and Landing Guardians of the Galaxy run. Um, where Blastar is kind of the treacherous number two to Annihilus of the Negative Zone. And mm-hmm. when Annihilus is defeated early in the series, uh, Blastar uh, tricks his way into becoming the de facto king of the entire Negative Zone. For the rest of the series, every time someone uh, calls him by his name, which is often because they're always surprised to see him, and they go, oh, Blastar! 
He always says, King Blastar, if you please. And then he blows somebody up. And I just love that um, he's like the he's like super powerful on Earth, but in space he's just like another weird super powered loser. But he manages to kind of con his way into a position of power that he holds on to very desperately for a very memorable run. I think I only saw him when they they did that uh, Annihilation skirt, not Scourge, um, whatever that that four issue event thing they did recently. I think it was called Annihilation Scourge. That one, Blastar was in that. Yeah, coming back from his King Blastar, if you please, days. Just a real, uh, that guy did not earn that energy. I'll put it that way. Guy, no, no, he did not. He really rose, uh, he rose and fell very, uh, it was really like a, like a meteoric rise and fall of Blastar. Love, love the guy. Poor Blastar. Well, speaking of Z-list villains, uh, this, no, that transition doesn't work. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, because our next book seems like it's hero-focused, no? Yeah. So, well, kind of. So, next month, we are going to be reading a book that, for once, Jake has not read. I finally did it. I found one. Jake has not read, and I have read. Uh, yeah, I've never read this. I'm excited to. I'm sure there are plenty that the two of us have both not read, but the this book, it is a four-issue miniseries from the early 2000s. It is called Bullet Points. Let me get the exact year. 2000, ah, sort of contemporaneously. It was written in 2000, 2006, 2007. Uh, so tail end of the year, so, uh, around the same time as Civil War, or the, the tail end. It is what DC would call an Elseworlds story. Oh, I didn't And it, is, it was published under the Marvel Knights imprint. That I knew. That's all I knew about it. I knew it was a Marvel Knights book. No, I'm not going to say anything else. Uh, I want it to be a surprise uh, and or uh, a shock or at least, you know, I don't want to spoil it. Even if even if giving just the, the basic summary of the, of the premise wouldn't actually do that. I'm excited to be surprised. It'd be interesting. And I'm, I'm excited to hear Jake's thoughts. I'm excited to hear all of your thoughts. And I'm excited to see my own thoughts when revisiting this. It is four issues. Uh, it is on Marvel Unlimited, probably also purchasable digitally, physically, uh, if you can track it down. Spiritually, if you're feeling up for it. Spiritually. Got to really channel channel it. It may have been five issues. It was uh, five issues. I'm wrong. That's it, yeah. Five-issue miniseries by J. Michael Straczynski and Tommy Lee Edwards. Bullet Points is our next book club book of the month for next month. See you there. See you there. See you there.